Well, this morning we come to a new passion, new chapter in the book of Romans. Again, we all all aware that these chapter divisions are, are man-made. Uh, these were not authored by the Apostle Paul. And, and yet in some measures, they can be helpful, certainly helpful to locate portions that we, we want to locate, um, to have chapter and verse divisions. Um, this probably is not a bad division. Uh, Paul, in the end of chapter 4, has clinched the deal, I think, on the reality that all, without exception and without distinction, in the church of the Lord Jesus, have been justified by faith. That it is the faith that Abraham had, that believed in the God who raises the dead, that brings us to Christ in faith, that he is in the God who raises the dead. And to believe that though in and of ourselves we could not have any hope of salvation, there is a God who does create and who does resurrect. And uh, having that faith in the Christ who died for us, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification, uh, we in the church, whether we're Jew or Gentile, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of anything that distinguishes us from others in terms of the natural things in this world that make us perhaps to differ from one another in, in um, income, in, um, in, uh, gross, in, 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 in terms of our net uh, worth, in terms of our education and backgrounds, uh, yet in Christ um, we all have equal standing. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all being justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't lose that sight that that's Paul's concern when we come into chapter 5. Um, it continues. Even though there's an absence here in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of any Jew-Gentile distinction, that doesn't come up again until chapter 9, that you actually read about, uh, uh, you know, about the, the privileges that belong to the Jews, about the way in which Jews were um, the, uh, the root of the tree and Gentiles are grafted in. And uh, that comes in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Um, but yet, I don't think we should wholly exclude that concern from our thinking. And so when we come into chapter 5, and we read such things as we do in verse 1, where it says, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it would be proper to emphasize the fact that Paul's using plurals here. And um, though we're northerners and not southerners, and though it's adding a word that's not really there, yet the sense of it is, since therefore we all, the old southern we all, we all have been justified by faith. Jew and Gentile alike have been justified by faith. We all have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know I added a word. Put it in italics. But it's a word that really completes the sense of what Paul's saying. Because Paul's now going to go on in this passage in chapter 5 and begin to describe the blessings or the benefits, the privileges, the distinctive um, blessings that the, that the justified possess. And we need to understand that just as we all were leveled in sin 
and we're all leveled in terms of our standing before God as the justified, we all are equally blessed with the blessings of salvation. We all have these benefits in Christ. They don't come to us because we're Jewish. They don't come to us because we are Gentiles. They come to us because we are Christians. They come to us because we have trusted Christ. We've believed in Christ. We've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have these blessings through our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, that's, I think we have to have that in our thoughts when we read chapter 5, that uh, again, Paul is not talking about, um, you know, the way we proclaim the gospel to the world. and I know, I know you can make arguments here to the world, the world lacking in peace, the world in conflict, the world uh, unable to get on with one another. And here Jesus comes with a gospel that is a gospel of peace. And it's not incorrect to proclaim Jesus to the world as the Prince of Peace. But this is an argument in this passage that's a church argument. It's an argument of the people of God in the recognition that we all share together the same benefits, the same blessings that the gospel confers, that God doesn't have favorites in his church and he gives one, uh, though there's there's a diversity of gifts, yet these are not blessings that are are gifts. These are blessings that are common to all the people of God. These are the blessings that salvation brings, that justification by faith brings. Okay? So what are those blessings? Well, Paul begins with peace. Peace. He says, therefore, since we all have been justified by faith, we all, every Christian, every believer, has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul's saying here is not so much a question of what we might think of as being subjective peace, a sense of peace, a feeling of peace. He's talking about the fact that we have an objective peace with God. Now, the objective peace we have with God ought to also translate into a sense of peace. Because peace in the Old Testament is well-being. The Greek idea of peace was that the war has ceased. The conflict has ended. Peace treaties have been signed. Someone's made subject to some tougher king, some bigger king, some more powerful king. And everybody has to live with the peace conditions, whether we like it or not. Well, God has brought a condition of peace around that uh, brought a peace, a condition of peace about that is in the benefit of everyone. It's not something that um, places us under uh, uncomfortable, unreasonable, unnatural, unwilling subjection to a God who doesn't have our best interests at heart, to a Lord who's going to trample over us and dominate us in a in a horrid and ugly and oppressive way. Uh, This is the God who is the great liberator of his people, who frees us from the power of our sins, who brings us into the orbit of a relationship with him in which there's not just the cessation of a conflict, there's the presence of well-being. We are given well-being. We're given the right to consider all is well with our souls, whether we sense it or not, whether we've come to worship this morning feeling overly taxed with the troubles of the world and the problems we're going through and the difficulties we are facing, there's a sense in which you can say, be of good cheer. And the fact that Christ has overcome the world, he's provided peace. There is peace 
Peace that is objective. Peace that is God-given. Peace that you are called upon to understand and recognize and enjoy. And in one sense, you're no longer exposed to divine justice in any way of condemnation, in any way of wrath against your sins. Your sins have been pardoned. And God calls you his son and his daughter. He admits you into a relationship of intimacy and nearness through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this matter of peace, this objective peace that ought to be always subjectively experienced, enjoyed, um, is connected with other things that also speak to the issue of that inward, internal, subjective sense of good and well-being uh, that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other ideas that Scripture gives uh, that speaks in terms of the peace of God. A different preposition is used here. It's peace with God. There's a relational peace that, uh, again, admits us into God's presence in a sense of favor. You you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be... Uh, questioning whether you're going to get admitted into his presence or not. And you're going to talk about admittance to his presence. But um, we have peace with God. And that's something that, um, again, comes to us through the gospel. But yet, again, in the midst of the troubles of life, we, we, we face, the, we're not blind to the realities of life. We're not blind to the troubling factors that come into life's existence that bring worry and brings anxiety and brings a sense of fear and brings a sense of distress. And so Paul then can address the church in the Philippian letter and say, be anxious for nothing. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then he says, the peace of God. The peace of God. The peace that comes from God. That sense of well-being that would um, fill the heart and the mind in Christ Jesus is given in response to our making known our needs unto God. And again, making known our needs unto God is the realization He cares for us. He's involved with us. He's not a distant God. He's not an indifferent God. He's not a God who doesn't care about our life experience. And we can roll our cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. And sometimes, you know, it's not just, well, we have objective peace with God, so... That's all we need to understand. That that truly is the basis of everything. But that fact that we have peace with God admits us into the divine presence so that we can lay our cares and our concerns and our prayers before him. And that's where Paul goes in the next blessing that he speaks of. The next benefit of the gospel is that through him we've also obtained access by faith. We've obtained access to this God. We have admission there's an old song from the 60s. People get ready for the train is coming. Um, you don't need a ticket to get, you just get on board is what it says. Well, there's a sense in which that ticket, that train that's going to glory, and that's the theme of the song, that people get ready for the train that's bound for glory. And uh, you need a ticket. But it's a ticket that God himself confers, he himself gives. It's a ticket of faith. It's a ticket that trusts. It's a ticket that embraces Jesus as our Lord. And so this access we have, this admittance, um, we have the ticket ready. It's not like we're at the gates of Yankee Stadium hoping to see the ball game today. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have a ticket. How do I get in? Well, you don't get in. 
if you don't have a ticket. But you get you have a ticket. It's a, it's a, it's a ready admission. It's a standing admission. You have a box seat uh, uh, place in the kingdom of God. And you always have admittance into the presence of God. 24-7 admittance. You don't have to schedule an appointment. You have access. You have entry. You have a way of approach unto God. Jesus has paved the way as the pioneer of our salvation, who has entered into the presence of God for us, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. He is the great mediator. And because of him, we are always received. It's like I was as a kid going to Coney Island in the summertime. And uh, I don't know if any of you, probably some of you like it, and some of you don't like those old scooter rides, the bumper cars. Um, I love those things. I love to ride on them. And I had a real benefit being raised in my family. And that is a relative of my, um, my grandmother owned Freddy's Scooter Ride. Yeah, Freddy Scooter Ride in Cody Island. And so when they wanted to get rid of me, which was like often, <laughs> when they took me to the beach and they wanted to go off to do whatever they wanted to do, they would just stick me at uh, Uncle Freddy's Scooter Ride and I would be have a standing admission. I, I never had to get out of the car. I, I had a, because I, I knew the owner. I knew the owner. Well, we have standing admission into the presence of God. Because we know the Lord of the manor. We know the Lord who is um, inviting us into his presence. We have um, a standing invitation to come and to draw near to a throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So we have peace with God. We have access uh, to God. We have a standing in the grace of God. And we've accessed by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in the favor of God. And it's a favor we stand in that can never take, be taken from us. And then the result of all of that, our peace with God, our access to God, our standing in the grace of God, brings us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what we have in the gospel is not just something for, for this age, but for the age which is to come. We have hope that this peace will never end. This access is not temporary, but permanent. This standing in grace is everlasting, will never come to an end, because we have the hope of the continuance of all of these blessings on into the endless ages of eternity because we have hope of glory we have hope of standing in the presence of God in glory now this is the first time I believe in, the, in, this, uh, gospel, in this book that Paul's mentioned the term hope and um, you know, language like peace I think it's also the first time he's mentioned peace in chapter in verse 5 is the first time he's going to mention um, love now, he might have mentioned peace in chapter 2 that we have peace. I don't. I don't recall precisely, but the the gospel vocabulary that we're being introduced here is rich. It's rich. We have peace. 
We have grace. We have hope. We have love. And, and hope needs to be underscored as not just being um, a momentary optimism. Just, well, I, I hope the Yankees will win today. I hope it won't rain. I hope this good weather continues and does not end. We use hope in that sense. We have a, an optimism about something. Be, be positive. Look on the bright side of things. But, you know, we could soon have that devastated by the reality of what comes tomorrow. Um, but hope is undiminished. Because hope is something that is a confident expectation of what God will do. That the God who has already done all these things for us in terms of justification, in terms of peace, in terms of access, in terms of standing in grace, is the God who will never cease doing us good. In fact, we have hope that the best things are still to come. That we will stand in his presence in glory. That we will share in the glory of the saints in the eternal kingdom of God, in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that hope is not a bare optimism, it's a confident expectation. We genuinely believe and confidently expect and patiently wait for what God has promised he will do. And again, back to Abraham's faith was hope against hope. Uh, and yet he believed that what God had promised he was able to perform. And that's the nature of our, our faith and the nature of our hope. Uh, you know, we'd have no right to hope of any good in the future unless God himself had declared what that future will bring, what he intends to do at the end. Uh, so we have an eschatology of hope. We have a confident expectation of good things in the final days, that the, the best things are still to come. And I guess as long as the blessings keep coming, we can uh, continue on. It's just a state of mind and heart. Right? As long as the blessings keep coming, as long as we maintain our health, as long as we maintain our, our jobs, as long as we maintain our are the good things we presently have but if anything happens to diminish stuff man, just don't know where I'll be then well, Paul says actually this gospel brings the benefits that are good in the face of the worst things that could ever occur in this world he says in verse 3 not only that (laughs) not only that not only can you look back upon the things God has done in Christ and blessings he's conferred in forgiving your sins and making you righteous in his sight and changing your status before him. Uh, not only can you take heart in the fact that you have this relationship with God of peaceableness and this relationship of God, we have access into his presence and we stand in his grace and we can rejoice in future things. But um, hey, let's get real. This life is a life of trouble. This life is a life of sufferings. And God's people are not exempted from such sufferings. And those sufferings are external to us, things that we cannot avoid, but God in his providence is pleased to bring into our life experience. It can be uh, through people, through persecutions that come from without, 
All manner of sufferings were called upon to endure. And Paul is the great example of the hardships of being experienced and even pursuing the things God's called them to do. That doesn't mean exemption from suffering. If you're obedient, you'll just not face such things. No, no. Obedience leads to such things. And just so much in the fallen world exists within the church of God's people hurting one another. Um, I hate even to bring it up, but uh, my wife may be aware of an upcoming 2020 that was actually broadcast on Friday evening. I don't know if anybody saw that. But uh, she was interested in it because it actually affected one of our relations. One of our relatives is, was friends with uh, one of the women involved. and involved a woman who in church met a guy, and this guy had uh, lost his wife. His wife had been murdered. And um, oh, oh, the story was that someone had entered into the home and had taken her life. And he supposedly had stood and resisted him, and he ripped a gun away from him and ended up shooting his wife. And, but any time I hear those stories where the wife gets shot in the back and it's a mortal wound, and, this, and the guy gets uh, you know, a flesh wound in the leg, you just, the antenna go up and say, oh no, oh no. When the woman is dead and he's, you know, injuries that he's going to recover from, chances are he did it. Chances are he did it. And, and the thing that, about it is that this guy was one of the leaders in the church. Leaders of youth groups and real respected by everybody in the Christian community. And yet he had a double life. Yet he had a hidden life. And a woman who married him with the best hopes of this man being who he said he was and who everybody thinks he was would be the one who would care for her and protect her is the one who killed her. Is the one who killed her. And the story about our relative's friend is that she's friends with the second wife who began to see a reenactment of the original murder and she ran and escaped with her life. But uh, she saw everything happening that happened before and she came to the conclusion he must have been guilty he must have lied about everything that he lied about that he's not lying to me about and um, so she she ended up leaving and then he was uh, convicted anyway my point is even in the church when you think you have every reason to trust people and trust relationships we can get horribly devastated when you see that sort of thing work out in the church and I wish I could say that's the only thing that ever occurred along those lines but our own personal experience tells us otherwise we know that that sort of scenario has happened more than we ever would like to think but we know it's happened and the horrific things that happen in this world that Paul says is still in the midst of all of that that we can face and fear and brings us great distress and troubling trouble. We rejoice in our sufferings. Not rejoice at our sufferings, but rejoice in our sufferings. It doesn't mean our sufferings don't bring tears. It doesn't mean our sufferings don't bring heartache. It doesn't mean our sufferings don't bring anger 
against those who have brought those sufferings our way and the sense of injustice that our sufferings bring. But yet in our sufferings, there's always the basis for joy. If it's just that we know God in the midst of those sufferings. Imagine enduring the sufferings of this life not knowing God. Having to go it alone without any sense of his presence, his support, his love, his grace. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, Paul's going to go on to say what sufferings do in the life of the believer. But I just want to pause here for a moment and and just point out. A lot of these themes that we're seeing here emerge again later on in the letter. Do you know where exactly these themes of um, glory, sufferings, joy, um, many of the other themes also uh, emerge in chapter chapter 8. Chapter 8. And, and it's interesting because it's in chapter 5 that we have the first mention of the Holy Spirit. That the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And chapter 8 is one of the great statements about, about the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's also one of the great statements of hope. Um, that we're saved in hope. That the creation under the curse, groaning, will be delivered into the liberty of the sons of God. And we wait with expectation for what God's going to do. And then it addresses this whole matter of the sufferings that we endure in this present life. And Paul, in fact, calls them the present sufferings. And he says, um, let's look at it in, in, in Romans 8. And he says in verse 18, For I consider, or as I reckon, or I, I have thought this thing through, I've um, put all the pluses on one side, the minuses on the other side, and I've cons- I consider, I've, I've added it all up, that the sufferings of this present time, put that in one, one scale, and he says, that's not worthy, or not worth comparing, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Put that in the other part of the scale. And the glory that will be revealed to us far outweighs the sufferings of the present time. Again, it's not that the sufferings of the present time are not hurtful and are not difficult, but the sufferings of this present time as a Christian always has its compensations. The glory that will be revealed to us. That nothing he's going to want to say will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God is the God who uses all things to work together for our good. To those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. That even the troubles of this life are, are, are being used for the furtherance of God's purposes. Which is conforming us to the image of his son. And so I guess what I'm pointing out to you is that many of the themes that you see in Romans 5. They come at us again in chapter 8 when Paul brings this whole discussion to a conclusion. And so I really think in, in all these chapters, you know, we tend to make artificial divisions between them 
and say, well, this is referring to benefits, and this here is referring to assurance, and this over here is referring to something else. I really think the whole argument is really addressing the benefits of the Christian life, of living the Christian life, of the things we've been given by God through the gospel that enable us to live wisely, to live well, to live perseveringly, to live triumphantly, to be more than conquerors to him who loved us. And so I really think that that informs the entirety of these chapters. That, and the entirety of these chapters do address life in God's world as justified people and how we all together as the church of Christ possessing these benefits will persevere and help each other in persevering faith and faithfulness. Again, because we all experience the same reality of sin and grace and we all experience the same reality of the blessings of salvation so that we have all a common quest of spiritual prospering in the, in, in the ways of God that will lead us to the glory of God. So I just wanted to point that out. We're going to see these same ideas uh, in Romans 8 and um, that relationship I think is fairly clear of the language that's used. And so it might be that uh, Romans 5 to Romans 8 forms something of an ex- sort of an extended inclusio. You know, here Paul's laying out the the blessings, he's laying out the benefits, he's laying out um, just short term and long term benefits, and he brings that to a final uh, culmination in chapter eight. And then we we'll see that at each end of five and eight, and, and then we're going to work together in our exposition to see how the stuff in the middle uh, brings those things together. But let's just continue in chapter chapter 5. Um, because having said that we rejoice in the hope of glory and we rejoice in our sufferings, both of those things provide grounds for Christian joy. And the suffering part of it is not only that the glory outweighs the suffering, although that's a given, that's true, that's in chapter 8, but also in the present time, suffering is something God uses is productive of endurance. That's the word for perseverance, of continuance, of stick of not giving up. Suffering produces endurance. Now, at some points, suffering is something that also exposes folly or, or falsity. Suffering is something that when people in the church experience it and they then throw up their hands and say this doesn't work or whatever else they want to say about God and his place in our lives in the midst of suffering Um, and they say I don't any longer give credence to Jesus I don't any longer give credence to the gospel that's something that Jesus told us will happen in in the parable of the sower remember the parable of of the soils the different soils brought different results when the seed of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, was, was sown, was proclaimed, and there were people that responded with great joy, but then sufferings came for the gospel. And though they rejoiced for a time, then they said, forget it, no more. And they fell away. They just fell away. 
Um, suffering is something that can produce exposure of the fact that there's no depth to our faith. There's no reality to our faith. Our faith is not rooted in Jesus. Our faith is just something that is a profession of the lip and not the, the, dis, the disposition of the heart. But in a true believer, the same things that bring abandonment of the gospel bring continuance in the gospel. There's a tested, tried, proven faith that sees God's faithfulness to us in the midst of the trials and troubles of this life and continues on. There's often times in the midst of the sufferings that we're called upon to endure that we bring our hearts and minds before God more more fully. We come to trust Him more consistently and, 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 and genuinely because we need Him so much. We, we depend upon Him. All the other objects of trust may, perhaps are, are not there. And we need to rely upon Him. And we look to Him and our prayers are more consistent and our seeking of Him is more enduring. And that produces character. And the closer we get to the Lord and walk in his ways, we become like him. You become like the object of your worship. And when God has made the object of our worship, we become like him. As we, and we'll, you know, John says, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. It's part of the renewed blessings of the gospel, the blessings of, of gospel renewal is that as we look upon Christ in the gospel, as we look into the, the mirror and see the glory of the Lord, we're conformed to that same image from one degree of glory to another. Again, close proximity to Christ brings likeness to Christ. Close proximity to the God of heaven brings likeness to the God of heaven. And hence, in the midst of our sufferings, as we look to the Lord with greater intensity, and a greater sense of need, uh, that endurance in faith and faithfulness will produce Christian character. And that Christian character produces hope. This again, our faith is proven. We've seen God work. We've seen God give his help. And if he's been the God of our mercies in the midst of one measure of suffering, he'll be, he'll be our, that same God to us when suffering raises his ugly head again. We'll know where to go. We'll know who to turn to. We won't be hopeless. We'll have Christian character that will bring us ever to hope in God. And the great blessing that we have in in Jesus because of what he has done for us is this hope is not something that one day is going to just be exposed to something false and something that's shameful. Hope does not put us to shame. You know, when you've laid claim that uh, you know this product is going to make you drop a hundred pounds in the next <laughs> in the next year, and then it doesn't do it, then you're filled with shame. The product doesn't work. It doesn't 
doesn't do what it said, you, you claimed it would do. Or if you manifest yourself to be unfaithful to another person, again, you're putting yourself to shame. They're filled with shame because they've trusted you. <laughs> but there's no way we ever ever put to shame because God's never put to shame. His glory is revealed to his people and he will never let us down and so shame will never be part of the Christian experience. Our hope in God is a hope that will never be something will will let us down. That will bring us shame because hey, we trusted in a, a God whose promises were not good. In this sense of the reality that God's that this hope will never let us down is underscored and accentuated by the fact that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have that sense of his abiding love, the God who loved us in Christ, who sent his son to die for our sins. And we see his love at the cross manifested. He's going to go on to say, in the words of verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And it's in the cross that the love of God has been placarded. We're going to see this morning in the morning worship that there was a placard that was placed above the cross that uh, defined Jesus' crime against Roman law. This is the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And um, that was placarded for every eye to see. That's the reason he's being crucified. Um, and of course the Jews didn't like that because they said, no, no, he, he said he's the king, but, but he's really not. And uh, Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Because uh, Pilate's reason for putting that above the cross was that every pretender of kingship other than Caesar would say, that's the fate I'm going to be in if I persist in the support of any king but Caesar. So any pretentious king that maybe passing by the cross would say, I better not get myself involved in any revolutionary movements. Here's the king of the Jews. Look where he ended up. That was Pilate's thought about that. Of course, God's thought was that was to be placarded was the greatness of his love and that the king of the Jews dies for the people. What do kings usually do? They use the people. Kings usually get what they want from people and whatever they can't get, they just dispense with the people altogether and say, can't use it? You're nothing to me. That's what kings do. Kings are not that that giving. Maybe Elizabeth was a... (laughs) She was a real giving person. Anyway, the the thing that's happening in England now, this, you know, not a real king, but... Um, the figurehead of the of kingship is one of the things they're concerned about with the, the new king of England was that because he doesn't want that public exposure that his mother just thrived on and thought that the monarchy desperately needed she was going to lose the affection of her people if she wasn't out there with the people she had to be out there with the people and um, Charles is not that kind of guy he's going to you know, sort of pull back 
and uh, that they may think, hey, we don't need a king. Well, again, in a kind of uh, figurehead monarchy, um, the king understands, I'm not going to stay in kingship any longer if I don't give the people what they need. But, but in Caesar's kind of kingship, no, no, the people give me what I need. <laughs> That's what the king's concerned about. Not what he can give to the people, it's what he can get from the people. And anybody that would violate his authority as king, he'll crush. But it's Jesus, the king, who's crushed. Not the people crushed. He's crushed. That he might give to them the blessings of this great salvation. He has procured for them at the expense of giving up his life for them, a ransom for many. Here is love. Here is love. And the Spirit of God testifies to that love, that love of God manifested at the cross, that love of God that Paul reasons in chapter 6, if he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? It's got to love this so much that Christ died for us. It's not a God who's going to forsake us now. And that love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who testifies of Jesus is a love that enables us to continue on, even in the face of the world's hatred and the world's disdain. God loves me. He's demonstrated his love towards me and that Christ died for me. His love has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And I can persevere in the power of the grace that he does supply. And so the Christian is one who cannot be defeated. (laughs) Because when we were at our worst, that's what Paul's going to go on to argue. When we were at our worst, while we were still weak, verse 6 says, while we were sinners, verse 8 says, while we were enemies, verse 10 says, when you could think about the worst that you could say about the Christian, we were weak, we were sinners, we were enemies, when we were in that condition. What did God do? Did he say, I'll trample over the weak, I'll judge the sinners, I'll crush my enemies? No. When we were weak, when we were sinners, When we were enemies, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love to us in that Christ died for us. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then the argument is, if God did that for us when we were at our worst, when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were enemies, when we could have expected nothing, the argument is now the much more. Much more now. Much more now. That he died for you. That you were reconciled to God much more now we will be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. The wrath of God will not descend on us. The wrath of God will not ever meet us because we are in Christ. We have been saved from that wrath. We have his atoning death that has provided for our forgiveness, our peace, our access, our grace, our hope. Much more now. Being reconciled to God through the death of his son. We shall be saved by his life. And you think that what an argument that is. If his death saved us. If his death paid the penalty for our sins. What about the living Christ? What about the Christ who is now raised from the dead. At the, seated in glory at the right hand of the father. If the one who is in charge of the universe. Died for us. What can he do for us now? We shall be saved through his life. And then there's a final, much more then, in verse 11. We also rejoice, much more then. We also rejoice. We not only rejoice in hope of glory, we not only rejoice in our sufferings, but we rejoice in a reconciling God who through death has paid the price for our sins and now in life will provide us everything and anything that we need to bring us to the, to, to the destiny which is, his, which is his glory. Which is his glory. So it's a great statement of the benefits we possess but it's not peculiar to any one believer or any one segment of believers, these are the birthrights of all the born-again people of God. This, these are the blessings of all who have been embraced in the salvation of God. Are there questions this morning? I hope that was in some measure clear where Paul is gone. What he's now going to do, he's going to go back to the beginning and go back over the fact that it's in Adam that death reigned and it's in Jesus that life reigns. And we'll make the connection between um, you know, those realities of what we possessed in Adam. Again, sin leveled us all through our union with Adam in his fall but God's grace in Christ brings a reign of life and so again the one who lives for us and is ascended to the right hand of the father for us he reigns for us and in a reign of life continues to provide us every good thing that we need that we too might also reign in life with him through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we'll pick up that argument, uh, God willing, uh, next week. So may God be pleased to fill us with joy at the benefits we possess, that we are the possessors of peace, access, grace, hope, benefits in our sufferings, 
that produce character, endurance, character, and hope, and that we are the possessors of the Holy Spirit through whom the love of God in the, in, in the gospel comes to be more fully disclosed and more fully known to us. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, giving him thanks for the, the comforts of his grace and the wondrous provisions of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can together go through these points of concern that Paul laid out before the Roman Christians. Indeed, it is a joyful thing to consider what we have in Jesus, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that we serve a God of whom it can be said that no good thing would he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And we're thankful, Lord, that these blessings, these provisions, that your grace has bestowed upon us so freely, they don't just belong to, to us individually. They belong to the church. They belong to your people. We are sharers in these good things. We all are enabled to partake of the benefits of so great a salvation. So help us to honor one another, respect one another, encourage one another, love one another, assist one another in our common walk in faith. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another, as we have refreshments together, as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.